All right. If you got your lift notes, you can get them out. If you got your Bibles, you can open them up to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in a, a series on Paul's prison letters. And I want to start with a question. Have you experienced, so just genuinely think about this question for your life. Have you experienced and encountered a depth of authentic relationship with God that is so wonderful that you could genuinely say right now that your desire is to just go to heaven to be with Jesus because it's far better than anything else in life? That is the real-life testimony of Paul that he shares in Philippians chapter 1. It's quite a provocative statement to ponder. I mean, if we honestly wrestle with it, if we put it in that category of like, oh, the Bible's full of all sorts of big phrases that, you know, when I get a little intimidated by them, I just ignore them. Right? We all do that. <laughs> There's incredible things in the Bible. And under the, you know, the grace that is ours in Jesus, when, when it gets really big and challenging, we're like, oh, I'll, I'll come back to that one later. We're going to sit on one today, that uh, a statement Paul makes that is absolutely provocative in the, in the best of ways. Healthy to ponder, to think about, to be encouraged by, to be challenged by. I mean, writing from prison, Paul makes the astounding, from prison... Paul makes the astounding statement. He shares a really quite ridiculous testimony that he has in the middle of prison. He has joy and hope because knowing Jesus is, quote, far better than anything that prison can take away. And when I look at that as a real-life, genuine testimony of a real person, yeah, okay, who cares that he lived 2,000 years ago? It's just, he's just a real, he's just a man, just a person like you and I. The same Jesus is available to him, is available to us. So if I put myself in his shoes, imagine that I was in prison, would I have that same joy and hope that he displays? Because he's encountered a Jesus that's far better than anything prison has the ability to take away. And it's like, wow. That's encouraging. It's challenging. I want to know Jesus at that depth. So a little background before we get there. Paul is, as mentioned, in prison. So it's probably about A.D. 60 to 62. He is in prison in Rome, awaiting trial before the Roman courts on a certain type of house arrest lockdown. He's been walking with God at this point for about 30 years, 
His conversion was somewhere around 33 AD, shortly after Jesus ascended, resurrected and ascended. So he's been walking with God in life and ministry for almost three decades. Now he's awaiting trial, so he's got some time to reflect, to write. So he thinks about some of the churches that he's planted. And he writes four letters in that prison term. He writes Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, and Ephesians. The church at Philippi was founded by him on his second missionary journey around 49 to 50 AD. So he's writing somewhere about 12 years or so, at least 10 years, 12 years after he's planted the church. It's, it's thriving. It's doing great. You can see that in the letter. And so he's, the church is about 10, 12 years old, and he's writing a letter to just encourage them. It's a very honest and personal letter from prison. In some ways, it's the, in the letter, it's kind of like Paul asks a rhetorical question of himself, pretending the Philippians asked him, hey, how are you doing in prison? And he's like, well, hey, thanks for asking. Let me know. Let me, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you how prison is. So he planted a church in Philippi in the household of Lydia about 12 years prior. Just to kind of get the interesting background, so if you're a Bible geek like me and you like to kind of get into the background stuff, well, let's roll there just for a few minutes. So in Acts chapter 16, it's fun to connect the dots of this Philippian church instead of that being an anonymous group of people. It's like, do we know anything else about them? Yes, we do. Acts 16, in Paul's second missionary journey around 49 to 50 AD, we'll go through this relatively quick, but I like this stuff. So Paul heads out from Antioch, which is over here. He's got Israel, just to orient yourself real quick. There's a Mediterranean Sea. There's Israel up here. That's modern-day Turkey. And then you far left side, Macedonia. That's present-day Greece. So Paul sets out from Antioch, which had become his, essentially his sending church. He's a missionary of Antioch. They sent out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. So this is round two, getting sent out from his now home church at Antioch. First place we really saw the Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, get filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he's sent out again. And very interestingly... Uh, it says about him in Acts 16, 6 to 12, as he's going up there, it says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So you see Galatia right up there. So they're going through there. Having, and this is so interesting. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Asia. Or in other, the direct translation of being kept means Forbidden. He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So in other words, as he's on this red line here, he goes through Galatia, Derby, Iconium. He's going into Asia, right, or Asia Minor, they really called it. And he wants to preach and plant churches, but the Holy Spirit forbids him from preaching. I mean, let's let, let's let that phrase sink in. The Holy Spirit forbid him from sharing the gospel. Why? Why would the Holy Spirit do that? Well, if you look in yellow, those little dots 
are the seven churches that are addressed in Revelation that the Apostle John planted, watered, cultivated. The Holy Spirit doesn't say that to Paul. Paul doesn't know that's happening. But when you look back in the end, you see the wisdom of the Lord. He didn't tell him why. He just said, trust me, don't go there right now. In other, but we look back, why? Because God's like, because I got it covered with my man, John. It's just kind of cool. Bible like, you know, affirms itself without trying to. Those are good things to see. So anyways, forbidden, he goes on into, as it said, goes on into uh, the border of Messiah, tried to enter, enter there into Bithynia. God said no again. And so he goes down to Troas during the night. He has a vision of a man in Macedonia. This is Acts 16.6 and following. And a man, the vision says, come over to Macedonia. So he concludes, okay, God has called us to preach the gospel in Macedonia. So from there, he sets out, sets sail, Troas, goes over. First place he stops for a while, I don't know if you can see it, top left corner, is Philippi. He's in modern-day Greece. Okay, picking up in verse 13, now let's look into God's word. So he's in Philippi. It says they stayed there for quite a while, some time. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Okay, that's a cultural context thing. In Judaism at the time, if there was not the quota of enough people, which I think was 10 adults, or maybe even 10 men at the time, to form a synagogue, then the, then the, the Jews were instructed to go, go meet by a river. So that's what's happening. There's not enough people in Philippi, not enough Jewish believers or Jews. So we, we expected to find a place of prayer by the river. We did. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So interestingly, it's a group of women in Philippi gathered by the river. So these are Jewish or believers in, in, in God via Judaism at the time. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, which is back in Asia Minor, in the middle of that map, in the middle of where the Revelation churches are. It's actually one of the churches of Revelation. Anyways, a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloths. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so Lydia's household becomes the planted location of the church. It becomes the home base of operations, as we see in the book of Acts, to where Paul goes in and out from her house, from her household, to go and preach, and then they come back. It's kind of the safe, secure haven. And from there, the, the church is planted, and the, and the church work goes on. Something very fascinating about Lydia, just a cultural piece there that we'll probably miss, a dealer in purple cloths. That is a very, very clear profession in the ancient world. And purple was the color of royalty. And a dealer in purple cloths meant that she was a a businesswoman, a business owner in the high-end fashion world of the, of the Roman Empire. I mean, royalty. This is like she is buying and selling to the, to the elite 
to the upper class royalty, whether it's interior decorating or whether it's fashion. To deal in purple cloth was a very, very specific high-end niche. And so Lydia, when it says the members of her household, most likely she traveled with a group of these fashion designers, if you will, in the Roman Empire, and she was the, the, the queen of the company, if you will. And so it's very just interesting cultural context that we then will see in Philippians here in a minute. So this, she was obviously then a very wealthy business owner. She was running a, a whole, I mean, when it says household, there's a process. Like the way they got purple cloths was this long process of boiling rare snails and extracting the dye. <laughs> so this is like a major operation. And so Lydia is the, the leader of this uh, high-end fashion business. And so you fast forward 10 to 12 years. The church is thriving. Paul writes a letter to commend them and to challenge them and to keep pressing forward in their relationship with God. He goes on, we'll pick it up at verse 3. Don't have the verse here because just a quick little kind of narration of it. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all uh, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's a reference back to from the first moment, from the first day Lydia was converted, she said, if you think, if you trust that I'm a believer, you come and you stay in my house. It's to be part of my household let my house be kind of the, the, the home base operations of the church in Philippi. Let me partner with you in the gospel. And so Lydia and her household really became the, the support, the benefactor of the Philippian church. They supported Paul's ministry. And that's what he's referring to now. And later on, uh, in the end of the book, in chapter 4, Paul specifically says that you, Philippian church, were the only ones who financially supported me in my ministry in all of Macedonia. Well, who's that? It's clearly the, the, church, of, the church that was planted in Lydia's house, a woman who had considerable means to be generous to see the kingdom of God advance. And so Paul says, basically, all of the first, or the first half of the first chapter is just this big thank you. You've partnered with me from the beginning like no one else did. Thank you so much. I remember you in all my prayers. That essentially, the ministry in Philippi wasn't going to happen without you. So he thanks them for their support and their prayers. All right, so that's kind of a bit of just background, help orient ourselves with who is he writing to? What's a little bit of the history of where it came from? And, and now we really get into the, after the thank yous and the greetings, the meat of what Paul wants to start communicating uh, to this church at Philippi. And in some ways, like mentioned, this is very personal. He's in prison. He's giving them an update on how he's doing. He's, like I said, he's answering his own rhetorical question of, hey, how are you doing in prison, Paul? Oh, well, thank you for asking. I'd like to tell you. Here it is. But the, the reason why that's so provocative to me is it begs the question. If you were unjustly imprisoned for being a Christian, 
What would your outlook on things be? What would your attitude be like? What fruit would you producing, be producing? It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by our, uh, our brother Chris Breeding. I think he says someone else told him, but I want to give Chris the credit. Chris made up this quote. When a Christian gets squeezed, Jesus should come out. Good job, Chris. We love you, brother. It's a great picture, though. When we get squeezed by life, when circumstances get hard and squeeze us, what comes out? It's a great picture of, well, if you got Christ in you and he's reigning supreme, he should be what comes out of you when you get squeezed. So Philippians is the genuine testimony of a person who has been passionately walking with Jesus, serving Jesus for almost 30 years. And, and you look at his life and he's getting squeezed. And, you know, about as, about, a, about as hard as you can get squeezed. But the fruit that comes out of his life is attractive. And so immediately as I'm, I'm reading this text, I'm reading this letter, and again, just working hard to be like, remember, this is a real person. This is a real testimony. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same Jesus he encountered that made him live so different is, is alive right now with me, in me, saying, hey, I want to do that in you. And that's the invitation for all of us as we read this, to be encouraged, to be challenged, God wants all of us to experience him at this kind of depth of power and goodness. So let's get into the real meat of chapter 1 and this incredible testimony that Paul gives. So Philippians 1.18, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know, that's a confident phrase, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this situation, I'm just paraphrasing or adding parentheses, this situation of me being in prison will turn out for my deliverance. I'm going to pause there for a second. I will rejoice. I know this situation is going to turn out for my good. We've got to step back. Where is he right now? Oh, yeah. He's in prison. He is in a situation where his future is 100% uncertain in the natural. He might die. He's awaiting trial before an unjust court. Earthly forms of hope are dim. So when responding to his own rhetorical question of how you doing in prison, Paul, his first answer is, I will rejoice. Because I know, I know, that is a, there's a certainty there, a confidence. I know that this situation will turn out for my good. In summary, he says, kind of paraphrasing for our language today, he says, how you doing, Paul, in prison? Awaiting trial before an unjust court. Well, let me tell you. I've got joy. 
Because I am confident that one way or another, God is going to bring good out of this. It's an incredible testimony. Most of us feel like we're doing well if after we're out of a hard situation and it's behind us, if all that, you know, we got some distance between the really bad thing, if we can start processing and looking and saying, what are the ways that God brought good out of it, redeemed it, showed his faithfulness through it, if we're able to do that, we're doing pretty good, right? I mean, actually, no, we're doing really good. As contrast with the, the normal response in life of going through hard stuff is that you just get bitter, hurt, wounded, complaining, cynical. So it's, it is. No, no, I'm not knocking or denigrating in any way. Being able to look back at hard things and see how God can heal, redeem, restore is an awesome thing in hindsight. That's a powerful thing we should do. But Paul's taking it to a whole nother level. He's still in the pit. His future is wildly uncertain. And he's already saying, I've got joy. Because I know, no matter what happens, God's going to bring good out of this. And that's where, wow, can we put ourselves in those shoes? Would we have that kind of fruit when we, got, when we get squeezed? So it's a really attractive testimony. It's powerful. It speaks to an internal spiritual power in Paul that is very rare, if we're honest. So my mind naturally goes to, well, where does this fruit come from, man? He's getting squeezed and impressive stuff is coming out. How is that possible? And he's, Paul is uh, good enough to essentially share the secret to his success. He goes on, verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, or excuse me, yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So three things stand out to me right there to answer the question of where does this good fruit come from for Paul? And here it is. It's Paul has a clear vision for his life. What is it all about? And a purpose-filled mission. What should he be doing? surrounded by or coming from something of utmost value. So let's look into, look into it here. 
Paul's vision. And let these things, let the clarity of these things challenge us, encourage us that Jesus is saying, I too want to be this good and powerful for you. Verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but with full confidence now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul has a very clear vision that Christ will be honored. Another way of looking at vision is Paul has an ultimate why. Why do I exist? Why am I doing what I'm doing? What is the grand point of it all? What is my ultimate motivation? And he lays it out there for all of us to see. His vision, his ultimate why is that Christ be honored. And so he's able to say, even in the pit, I'm confident. I mean, look at all this language of confidence. I know that through your prayers, this will be for my deliverance. It's with my eager expectation and hope, with full courage. Listen, just listen to those adjectives. <laughs> He's in the pit. He's in prison. His future is wildly uncertain, yet he knows. He has full courage that this is going to work out for his good. How does he define his good? His vision is ultimately that one way or another, whether by life or death, Christ is honored. That God is glorified. It's the same exact thing, that Christ be honored in his life. That's his why. And when you have a clarity of vision in your life, it makes you a powerful person. And when you have a clarity of vision like this, the biblical vision for all of us is that Christ would be honored, that God would be glorified in our life. The clarity of vision makes him powerful because now he's not dependent on external circumstances. Prison cannot take away Christ being honored in his life because he can trump prison. He can say there's something more powerful than prison, whether by life or death, I know Christ can be honored. So prison, you've got nothing on me. That's a powerful person. And that's why every good business that you ever have heard of has a vision statement. Because if they don't have an ultimate why, why do they exist as a business? Why do we exist as a church? Oh, it's on the wall. <laughs> In case we're not clear. If you don't have a motivating why, then your life is truly aiming at nothing. If you have a motivating why, you become a powerful person that's able to filter all the stuff and the external circumstances aren't dictating your reality because the external circumstances don't dictate your why and whether or not your vision can be accomplished. And that's exactly what Paul's getting at. So he has a real clarity of his vision. And then he goes on in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You can put that now down into Paul's personal mission statement. 
flowing out of his vision, his really big why, that Christ be honored, that informs his mission. What is he supposed to do? If Christ being honored is the ultimate why, the ultimate goal, what's his mission in day-to-day, every, every moment of life? What are you about? What's your business? And he's clear. To live is Christ. He's saying, as long as I'm alive, my mission every single day that I get up is clear. It is Christ. It's all about Christ. It's to be in Christ. It's to be for Christ. It's to encounter Christ. To live is Christ. It reminds me of the Luke 2 passage where Jesus, as a young boy at 12, is is lost, and then ultimately his parents find him, and he has this incredible statement where they're like, where are you? And he says, I have to be about my father's business. I love it. So Paul's saying, to live is to be about my father's business. I get up in the morning and I never have the question of what's my mission. To live is Christ. Now, there may be questions about the specific application of that. But man, if you've got an ultimate why, an ultimate vision, and if you've got a clear mission, you are going to get up in the morning with a lot more clarity and a lot more passion and a lot more power. And lastly, all of this is rooted in a value that Paul shares. Philippians 1.23 My desire is to depart this life and be with Christ, for that is far better. If there's any little phrase that can stick with you this morning, just far better. To be with Christ is far better than anything that prison can take away and frankly anything that life has to offer. That's his testimony. His value is to depart and be with Christ is far better. It's that real to him. This is not coming from a place of a morbid, anxious depression. I just want to end life. No, he's saying, no, I have found the treasure that Jesus spoke of that's hidden in the field that has such great value. When you encounter this treasure and you see it, you taste it, you know it, You will sell everything to get that treasure. And Paul says, I found it. So when my time is coming, I'm ready. In fact, actually, my desire is to depart. What he's saying there is he's encountered Christ. He's tasted Christ. To live is Christ. He's tasted what the psalmist says, that your love, O Lord, is better than life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's done all that. But he also knows that in this life, there will still always be weakness. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians as, right now in this life, no matter how much of Christ we've encountered, we still see through a glass dimly compared to the glory that's coming. That there are encumbrances, there are hindrances, there is brokenness, there is sin. 
So as much as we may have encountered Christ, it's in some senses nothing compared to being face to face. And so Paul knows that. So he's saying, I'm not only willing, I am desiring to go. Just listen, what to go what? Just be in a, you know, heaven where it's like pretty and nice. It's all of those things. But what's on his mind? To go to depart and be with Christ. That is the core of our hope. That is the most valuable thing we can possibly describe, encounter, experience. If being with Christ, fellowship with God, encountering God in God's presence is not attractive, you got work to do because that's what heaven is primarily about. Paul's vision is when I get to heaven, it's being with Christ unhindered. Nothing holding me back. Fellowship with God. Relationship with God. Face-to-face intimacy with God. And he's like, man, not only can I not wait, I want to go now. Wow. Yet he says, I'll stay. But I'm not staying for me. I'm staying for you. It's interesting. We think of people who make the ultimate sacrifice, and we honor people in our world, right? Christian missionaries, and there are many places in the world where the church is wildly persecuted. If you want a resource for that, look up Voice of the Martyrs. I I, I scarcely can't even read it anymore. My wife and I got that uh, magazine when we were first married, and it was on our coffee table. And I'm looking back, and I'm like, dude, we were just kind of crazy. It was like, let's sit around and let's just read all these testimonies of Christians being tortured to death. <laughs> it's like, we needed a break. We just started it again. It's a reality. There are many, many Christians around the world. In fact, the stats say now, in this moment of history, more than ever, part of that has to do with population growth. But that's a reality, that more Christians are being martyred every year around the world for their faith specifically persecuted than ever before in history. We honor those people. We hold them in the highest esteem. They were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. Others others in our world, in the military, in law enforcement, and appropriately we look to the willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice and be like, wow, you deserve our honor. But it's wildly fascinating that Paul's saying, I'm willing to die. But he has encountered Christ to such a degree, he's not looking at it as a sacrifice. It's not an altruistic, well, I'll die for you, okay, because I want to help you. Or I'll die for God just because I love him. He's like, I'm desiring to go because it's way better than anything here. But if I got to stay, okay, I'll stay for you. I'll make the the sacrifice is him not dying. The sacrifice is, okay, fine, Lord. I'll stick around because my churches still need me. It's just wild that that's a real testimony. That's how powerful his relationship with God had become. And that's attractive. And he closes the first chapter with a somewhat terrifying but incredibly encouraging word. He basically says, 
All of what I've experienced is for all of you, which I love on one front. I mean, it's, it's awesome news that he will make clear, as the whole Bible does, that the Bible does not select, especially the New Testament with the Holy Spirit being made available to everyone. That's the whole point of Acts chapter 2 and the prophetic fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. The Holy Spirit, God's personal presence, is now available for everyone. It's not, there is not an elite few that get to encounter God in a way that other people don't have the opportunity to. That has been blown apart by the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Christ. And Jesus says himself, now, would you believe in me? I and the Father will come and dwell in you. <laughs> so you can't get any more direct connection you can't get a better offer of availability. Can I know God than Jesus himself saying, yeah, me and the Father and the Spirit, we will dwell in you. So there is no elitist group in the New Testament. So Paul's testimony can become your testimony. Paul's encounter of God can become your encounter of God. But there's a cost. Philippians 1, 24 to 30. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all, with, excuse me, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So in other words, he's saying what I've encountered of Christ, I want to pass on to you. I want to help you continue to progress in your faith so that you can experience more of that same Jesus that I'm talking about right now that has so radically touched me, it's far better for me to go home. He's saying, I want to remain so that you can progress in that joy and faith. And then he goes on to say at the end of there in verse 29, but it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that's the same exact phrase as Paul's big picture vision, the honoring of Christ, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged, listen clear, closely, in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, listen to how Paul makes this a universal call. I'm staying in the flesh so that you can continue, you all, the church of Philippi, so it's just a, it's just a church, it's just a bunch of people, so it's not this elitist group, so that you all, the church at Philippi, can in, continue to progress, to encounter God in the way that I have, but... You will. It has been granted to you the same way to me that if you're following Christ, you're going to get into the same battles, the same conflicts, and the same at times you will have to count the cost of suffering for the sake of Christ. It's a challenging message. But what we clearly see is Paul is saying the same road I have walked, you can walk. It is a universal call. 
But there is a cost to encountering God with such glory. And that's where he closes up chapter 1. So we'll close this morning and just take a a moment now to reflect. And I know this will be further discussed uh, in the life groups this week and encourage you to process with family at home and what's hitting you, what's wrestling, what do you think God's saying, what's encouraging, what's challenging. But to, to see this genuine testimony of a person who's been walking with Jesus and serving God for almost 30 years, to see what's squeezed out of him in hard times is so attractive. To, write, to be writing from prison and have the astounding and encouraging real testimony that he has joy and hope in the pit because he knows Jesus is far better than anything prison or any other circumstances can take away. I just want to pray a blessing the Lord. May we all encounter that. So Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just bless us with more revelation of who Jesus is. That just in the same way that Paul has encountered a living, vibrant, active relationship with God that has truly become the the foundation of his joy and hope, saying there's nothing better, nothing better than imagining face-to-face, unhindered relationship with God because it's already so real. So it's going to be far better than anything else. We ask, Holy Spirit, you would be revealing yourself to us, revealing to us the depths of the relationship with Jesus that we're made for, that Paul testifies about. And we pray that, Lord, you would give us courage to enter into the conflict that is needed, the battle that there is, the spiritual warfare that causes the the, the conflict inside us and externally that we've got to be courageous to enter into and wrestle through. In those places where you're calling us to enter into that conflict that Paul called suffering, we pray, Lord, for courage. We pray for clarity. We pray for, in those places, revelation of the greatness of Christ. So with joy and hope, we can say, hey, it's far better. Jesus is far better than anything else. Thank you, Lord, that that is real. Thank you that that is real to many in this room. But just like Paul says, we we know that we still see dimly. So we pray for more. And would you be honored That more and more we can say to live is Christ and to even die is gain. We can't do this, Lord. So we ask for help. And we know you can. For the sake of Christ, may Christ be honored. In Jesus' name we pray.
dance a new dance like David.